0: I feel like I can't say, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 anymore. It's like leaving an old friend, isn't it? We're going to meet a brand new friend, chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and some exciting things, challenging things certainly to us, uh, will begin this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open up to that passage. We're going to read the first six verses together and focus on the first two verses of this particular passage. They have some substantial things to speak to us. I have a question for you. Uh, before you answer, before you raise your hand in response, I want you to think about this, okay? So don't just impulsively do this. Who, who would like to be done with sin? Anybody? Okay, don't raise your hands too quickly. Who would like to be done with sin? Okay, a smattering of people would like to be done with sin. Most everybody would still like to have sin in their life. Okay. Who would like to be done with sin? Finished with sin? Free from sin? Wonderful. Okay. How do you think of sin? Now by that I mean, do you think of it as some minor inconvenience, a, a troubling issue, um, just kind of nags you, and, or, or, or do you think of it as the evil of evils, the worst evil? And I say that because how you think about and how you understand sin is going to determine how badly you want to be rid of it. Does that follow? Does that make sense to you? So it's very, very important as we, as we reason together this morning that you think along these lines. What do I really think about sin? How, what, what's my understanding? What's my attitude towards it? And how badly do I want to be free from it, done with it? So with that in mind, read these verses with me. And then we're, we'll begin to unfold Peter's thoughts on this subject. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 1, therefore, that's a fascinating word, therefore, isn't it? It's a key word at this juncture. It points back to some stuff. So he's calling us to make some conclusions. He's calling us to, uh, to begin to assert ourselves because of some things he said. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, how much did Christ suffer in his body? Ultimately, didn't he? He suffered unto the point of death so remember that that phrase suffered in his body really speaks about his what his death that's a key point to remember therefore since Christ suffered in his body arm yourselves also with this same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is now here it comes what mm-hmm. done with sin so now you have a little preview of what you're in for this morning as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Sin. May I suggest to you that sin is the worst evil. It is the evil of evils. But I think sometimes we lose sight of that, caught up in the busyness of our life and the, and the experiences and demands and da, da 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 da. We lose sight of this fact that, that sin really is the worst of all evils. I want to read to you a paragraph from a book that I read years ago, banned by the name of Ralph Venning. It's fascinating when you find these old, old, old books. This book was published in 1669. The title of the book is The Plague of Plagues. Let me read to you this paragraph. He says, In general, sin is the worst of evils, the evil of evil, and indeed the only evil. Nothing is so evil as sin, nothing is evil but sin. As the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, so neither the sufferings of this life nor of that to come are worthy to be compared as evil with the evil of sin. No evil is displeasing to God or destructive to man, but the evil of sin. Sin is worse than affliction, worse than death, worse than the devil, worse than hell. Affliction is not so afflictive, death is not so deadly, the devil is not so devilish and hell is not so hellish as sin is. This will help to fill up the charge against its sinfulness, especially as it is contrary to and against the good of man. Then he says, the four evils I have named, namely affliction, death, the devil, and hell. He says, the four evils I have named are truly terrible, and from all of them, everybody is ready to say, Lord God, deliver us. Isn't that true? And yet none of these, nor all of them together, are as bad as sin. Therefore, our prayers should be more to be delivered from sin. And if God hear no prayer else, yet as to this we should say, we beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Deliver us from sin. I thought that was a tremendous passage and it says so uniquely uh, how wicked and vile sin really is. It reminded me again of that great reality. So he helps us to understand the evil of sin. It is worse than affliction, he says. It is worse than death. It is worse than the devil. It is worse than hell itself. It is true, I suppose, that every believer should hate sin. Would you agree? I suppose that it's true that every believer would long to be free from sin. Would you long to be free from sin? Hating it? All of us at some time or other in our lives, in one way or another, with some words or other, have cried out the same sentiment that the Apostle Paul does in Romans chapter 7 when he says what? Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's talking about this sin-laden body, if you read that passage. And I think that we've all cried out against our own wretchedness at one time or another. We've all longed at some point in time to be delivered from the bondage of sin. There, in a single one of us at some point hadn't shaken our head and said, God, this is, I hate this in me. I hate this in me. Now, the question comes, since sin is the evil of all evils, indeed the only evil, and since we hate it and long to be free from it, the question is, how do we avoid it? How do we avoid it? What's required of us if we are to, in fact, stay away from sin? Well, it's obviously the major effort of our life. Would you not agree with that? Isn't it a major effort of our life to stay away from sin? As Christians, isn't it the major effort of your life, the life of every believer, to stop sinning, to avoid sinning? We put a lot of time, a lot of thought, a lot of energy, a lot of effort into that dynamic, don't we? Now, in order to stop sinning, in order to avoid sinning, you need some perspectives. Three perspectives. In a sense, you have to live in three tenses. The future, the present, and the past. Now stay with me. In order to avoid sin, you have to have a future look. You have to, in a sense, kind of live in the future. Now, I know Jesus said, "Don't don't be anxious about tomorrow, don't be anxious about the future. But there is a sense in which we do really have to be aware of the future. We have to be watching for that temptation that has not yet arrived. We have to be uh, and to do what Jesus told His disciples to do that they did not do in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Remember when he was in the garden, undergoing his passion, and he asked his disciples to pray one hour with him, and did they do that? No, they fell asleep. They fell asleep. They weren't attending. Jesus says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. We have to be on the alert. We have to be watchful. We have to be careful. Always looking ahead. Always anticipating what might come. Not fearful. Just anticipating what might come. We have to be people who are walking circumspectly. Walking carefully. Walking wisely in the light of dangers in the future. Now, I know that you know what I'm talking about, but very often we do not actually do that. So it's important for us to have a a future sense if we are, in fact, to avoid sin. Most most particularly with respect to the occasion of sin. We also have to have a present look. We have to live not only in the future, but also in the present tense, if you will. And... uh, not only are we anticipating and looking forward to what might come, but we're looking to the present, at what is surrounding us now, so that we might not be duped into uh, unwitting sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, when he tells us to what? Hate what is evil, and what? Cling to what is good. Those verbs are in the present tense. Those verbs are in the present tense. Jesus says, watch, watch. Be careful. Paul tells us, be sensitive to what's going on around you now. He said, where you see, where you see evil, hate it, hate it now. When you see good, cling to it. So you have a present tense sense about your life. And he says much the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, when he talks and says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, it's a present tense environment. Right now. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Same idea, different words, same idea, same thought. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. When? Now. Presently. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. When? Now. Presently. Do you follow what I'm saying? So we have to have a future look and as well a look at the present. We're constantly looking forward toward the future, anticipating what might come of sin. We're also very carefully assessing the present, so that we may not also fall into sin. But there is the need as well to look to the past. Now as soon as I say that, I know some of you may be thinking, but yes, but we're, not, we're supposed to forget what is behind, forget the past, right? That's not what he's talking about here. That's not what we're looking at. We're not to dwell on our particular past. We're not to rummage through our past, forgetting what is behind, forgetting our past accomplishments, forgetting our past failures. We are to press on. That's not what we're talking about. There's a need to look to the past. One of the most important faculties for dealing with the evil of all evils, that is sin, one of the most important faculties is to have a good memory. Now, what do I mean by that? Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. What's the first word of that verse? Therefore. First word is therefore. And that word therefore points us what? Back, doesn't it? Points us back to who and to what? To Jesus in His suffering, huh? So He points us back. We're to have a good memory for whom? For Jesus and what He went through. We have a... We have a special way, Christians have a special way, for remembering Christ. What is that special way? Communion, the Lord's table. He said, remember me. Remember me and what I've done. Remember me that I'm coming back. Remember me. And so we, we, we come together and we focus on Christ. We remember. You have to have a good memory. And so, in a sense, we do have a past perspective. We live in the past, but with respect to Jesus Christ. Very, very important. So, I believe that's what Peter is saying to us here. He's calling on us to remember some things that will enable us to shun sin. He's calling on us so that we will remember some things that will enable us to shun sin, to not sin, to avoid sin. The key to the passage is found in verse 2. Look at verse two once again with me. As a result, he does not live his life, his rest of his earthly life for evil human desires. Does that sound like shunning sin? But rather for the will of God. Do you see? So there's this there's this future sense that we have. We live in the in the future, but we also live in the present. But we also have to have a, a, a past perspective, and we have to remember something, uh, some things that are very, very important. Now remember, before we actually dig into this passage, we must remember where we are and what we're talking about, what the context of the passage is. The whole letter, Peter's whole letter, is written to whom? It's written to Christians, first century Christians, who are having a wonderful time. They're on vacation. They're on a cruise. Who's he writing to? Christians that are suffering, persecuted, dying. Some of them. So he's writing to a particular context. And he's writing to encourage these people to continue on, to press on in their faith. Indeed, to give them a sense of hope. And the passage has reached a certain climax at the end of chapter 3. And we've been studying this over the past several weeks. And he says to us, in effect, in all of your suffering, remember this that your suffering can be what? Triumphant. Thank you. Let's say that again. Your suffering can be? Turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and say, now remember this. In the midst of your suffering, your suffering can be triumphant. Who's the model? Jesus is our model. Jesus is our example. Uh, verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3. We've been studying that passage. We saw how Christ, in the midst of unjust suffering, gained the greatest victory, did he not? At the time of his greatest suffering, didn't he? As we noted in our last several studies, that when Jesus was being unjustly killed on the cross, have you ever been unjustly treated? Have you ever felt that people have been unfair to you, you're not understood, and, and you're all alone, and no one cares, and I'm all alone. Have you ever felt that way? Sure, all of us do it sometime or other. Just this morning, huh? <laughs> Jesus being unjustly murdered on that cross, remember, in the midst of that, he was triumphing, wasn't he? We saw Peter tell us he triumphed over sin, didn't he? Triumphed over death. He was raised from the dead. Death couldn't hold him down. He was the victor over death. He triumphed over the very powers of of hell, didn't he? He He triumphed over what? The judgment of God. And he secured for himself the ultimate supremacy of being seated at the right hand of God. What a tremendous victory. What a tremendous triumph. What vindication. And Peter tells us, remember him. Remember what happened. Keep your focus on Him. Even in the midst of your unjust suffering, your trials, things that happen to you that are unfair, especially for the cause of Christ. When you view your suffering, remember that it may be, in fact, the moment of some great triumph for you, either over sin in your own life, over demons with which you may indeed wrestle, Uh, You may bring someone to Christ. You may be a refuge for somebody, an inspiration for somebody, as they watch how you live your life. And you may never know it till heaven. You may never know it till heaven. But we do have a hope of victory. It was so with Christ, and I believe Peter tells us it may also be that for us as well. Now notice, again, in chapter 4, verse 1. With all that in mind... Look at the word, therefore. That word points us back to what we have just described and what we have been studying together for the past few weeks. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. What did I suggest to you that that phrase, suffered in his body, meant? That he died. He suffered unto death. You have to take it to that conclusion, because that's in fact what he died. He suffered unto death. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same, what? Attitude. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. Attitude. What's that mean? The same attitude. The same attitude is very simply, be willing also to suffer in the flesh. Why? Knowing that it produces the possibility of great triumph, just as Christ did. Arm ourselves with the same attitude. I'm willing. I'm willing to suffer in the flesh. For Christ's sake. Because he who has suffered in his body is what? Done with sin. Since Christ died and had such a tremendous triumph, as we've studied, in his death, then arm yourselves with the same attitude. Your life is going to be a battle. You become a Christian, you enter a substantial warfare. Before you became a Christian, your life wasn't a battle not like it is as a Christian no way when you become a believer now all of a sudden your flesh fights against you all of a sudden you find all your friends turn against you you discover that there's spiritual beings who now rage against you all sorts of things begin to happen you find yourself in a genuine battle genuine warfare and you need to be armed does not Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the full armor of God. Well, Peter picks up that same idea, uses the same word arm. It's a military term. He says, "Arm yourself." But arm yourself with what? What should we arm ourselves with? Yeah, arm ourselves with he says the word in the Greek is ennoyan. It literally means mindset. You have to have this mindset. You have to have this attitude, this same mind as Christ had, the same way of thinking. You've got to arm yourself with it. We all know in life how it's very, very important to have a certain perspective about life. Isn't that true? That, that with a certain perspective, you're armed, you're prepared, you, you have a, a, a better way to deal with, with things that happen in your life. So he says, arm yourself with this same attitude that was in Christ. question is, are you armed? He said, well, what, what exactly is that? What, do I, what exactly do I arm myself with? The principle that even in death, I can triumph that's right even in death i need to arm myself with this attitude even in death i triumph arm yourself beloved with that great thought in other words and listen carefully be willing to die be willing to die arm yourself with that great thought that's exactly what i believe that peter is saying to us here be willing to die it's a very simple statement Christ died, you need to arm yourself with that same idea that you, too, are willing to die because you understand that in dying, there is triumph. You understand it. Now, you have an alternative, don't you? You have an alternative. If you're persecuted and your life is threatened, you can just recant. You can deny Christ. You can bail out, right? No? I had a dream a number of years ago, and it was just vivid, and it really spoke to this issue in my own life, and and I think it'll address, most all of you be able to relate to this in one way or another. I had this dream, and it was just, you know how sometimes you're you're not quite sound asleep, but you're kind of in that little twilight area where you're kind of aware, and things are so vivid and real, and I was in that little in-between area, I think, at least that's what I think. And I had this dream, and the dream was that, that uh, we, were, we were undergoing persecution for Christians. And that because I'm the pastor, and I'm, I, a lot of people know who I am, I was one of the first people to, to be attacked. And so they, whoever they were, the nameless faces, they came to my house in the middle of the night and uh, broke the door down and dragged myself and my wife and my son out on the front lawn. And there were flashing lights, and all the neighbors were out. Everybody was watching. And they had me down on, on my knees in the front lawn, and they threatened me, and they had a gun to my head, and I said, deny Jesus Christ. And I said, I, I can't, I won't. They said, if you don't deny Jesus Christ, we'll kill your wife and your son. And I looked over at my wife and my son, and you have to know, at that instant, there was this incredible battle raging in me. I did not want to lose them. But then a calm and a peace came over me. And I looked at them in my dream and I said, I'll see you in heaven. I turned to my wife and I turned to my son. I said, I'll see you shortly. And with that, I woke up. But I had to come to that place where it was my, my call, my decision, to submit. I would not recant. I would not deny Christ. I can't tell you how powerful that was, and I can't tell you how releasing it was, and I shared that with them uh, later on. And we all know, if in fact that should ever happen, we all know what to expect. We'll see you in heaven. We'll be there in just a little bit. Won't be long now. So, beloved, we, we, we need to be people who, who understand what's at stake. Jesus told His disciples that a time would come when they and others would not only be persecuted for the faith, but they would be killed for the faith. We know that. And He told them to arm themselves, prepare themselves. That as Christ was willing to die because He knew that in it there was triumph, that we should have the same thought. We should have the same thought. Be willing to die for righteousness' sake. Be willing to die for Christ's sake because you know it can be triumphant. Now let me say this. Let me just say it simply. Voluntarily. Voluntarily accept the potential of death as part of the Christian life. Can I say it that way? voluntarily accept the potential of death as part of the Christian life. Now, is that a new thought to us? It shouldn't be, should it? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39? What did Jesus tell us to take up? Take up our what? Our cross. Now, what does Jesus mean, take up your cross? What does that mean? It means to be willing to what? Die. Die. You say well I, I'm not too sure about that. I think he's just talking about being be spiritually dedicated. No, 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 no. That's not what he means. When Jesus said this, his hearers knew exactly what he was saying because they knew that the cross was an instrument of what? Execution. You were killed at the cross. He was saying, be willing to die for me. Be willing to give your life. And for many, many Christians down through the history of the church, that has been a reality, and it is a present reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. Paul himself, listen to Paul's testimony. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, what does he tell us? He says, I die what? Every day. What does he mean by that? He says, I am living on the edge every day. I'm, I'm, I'm close to death every day. If you remember back in the book of Acts, in uh, many of the places he went to preach, he was uh, chased out of town, beat up, uh, persecuted. In one particular situation, he was beat so badly, dragged out of town, left on the trash heap outside of town, left for dead. They believed they'd killed him. His disciples found him, his, his compatriots found him, and he hadn't been killed. Uh, he was so badly beaten, nearly death, and they revived him. And what did he do next? He went back into the city. He went back into the city. They'd beat him with an inch of his life. He says to us, "He's given over to life every I mean to death every day." In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, notice this. As he talks about the character of his own ministry, he says in verses 8 through 11, he's how he describes his ministry. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body, what? The death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to what? Death. He's always on the edge of death. He says, every day I'm, just, I'm living on the very edge of death, every day. And one day he did die, didn't he, for Christ. One day he was killed for the cause of Christ. But I submit to you, he was ready for that. He was ready for it. Remember that uh, when he wrote his last letter, anybody know what the last letter Paul wrote was? 2 Timothy. When he wrote his last letter, he makes this statement in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. He says, "I am ready to be offered in effect. I'm ready." Paul had been armed. The whole time, he'd come to grips with the reality that I'm willing to die for Christ. I'm willing to die for, becoming, for being a Christian. For Christ's sake, I'm willing to give my life. Every day, he lived on the edge of death. You see, he'd armed himself with the same idea. He'd looked at the death of Christ and seen Christ triumphant. And so he had armed himself with that same attitude that Peter talks about, that same idea that I, too, am willing to die for Christ. This, beloved, is the ultimate weapon. This is the ultimate weapon for the Christian. Think about that for a second. You say, what do you mean, ultimate weapon? Look, if the worst they can do to you is kill you, and then from your vantage point, from your perspective, the best that can happen to you is die, then you have what? Triumph, haven't you? You see, that's the greatest weapon you possess. Kill me! Because when you kill me, I triumph. That's the greatest weapon. Arm yourself. Arm yourself, he says, with this same attitude. You see, that's why so many martyrs during the history of the church have been so willing to die, because they've armed themselves with this great idea. There is great triumph in death. Jesus died and triumphed over sin. And if I die, I too triumph over sin. I too am now done with sin. Those last words of verse 1. What happens when you die? What happens when you die? You don't sin anymore, right? You don't sin anymore. That's good. Would you agree? That's good, because you hate sin, you want to be delivered from sin. And you'd like to be, what, godly, virtuous, holy, spotless, pure, wouldn't you? Who would like to be done with sin? Who would like to be holy and spotless and pure? Yeah, think about it. That's tremendous. So if I'm, if I'm armed, now stay with me, if I'm armed with the goal of being delivered from sin... If I'm armed with the goal of being delivered from sin, and that goal is only achieved through my what? Death, and that the ultimate that anyone can do to me is kill me, then they can only bring about that which is most precious to me. Does that make sense? They can only bring about that which is most precious to me. So Peter's telling these persecuted Christians to look for the triumph in death. They are being confronted with death. they are being given over to death every day in their personal experience. And he says to them, don't be intimidated by it. Don't be afraid of it. Rather, have the same attitude of Christ. Look through it to the triumph that's in death. The worst that the hostile world can do is kill the believer, and if the believer is willing to die, that's no threat. That is no threat. You read the accounts again of Christians killed for the cause of Christ. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, other accounts of Christians who have died, and you ask yourself, how is it that they can endure such horrible things? The answer is because their view they view death as triumph. They view death as triumph. They've armed themselves with that great attitude. Because they know that in death, they cease from sin. They're done with sin. Then death, beloved, has about it a certain sweetness, doesn't it? When you think about it. The one who dies is done with sin. The one who dies is done with sin. Now, you and I, you and I are, are not going to suffer the degree of persecution in those first century. We're, it's a very remote possibility for us in the present tense, isn't it? So it's going to be difficult for us to embrace this, but we still have to have this attitude about us. Even though we're not in very real present danger. We are in present danger of being ridiculed, huh? being marginalized, being mocked, being laughed at but certainly not killed. The one who dies is done with sin. It's a perfect tense verb. It's a perfect tense verb emphasizing a state or condition in which you enter. The believer, believer who dies enters a state of permanent state of sinlessness, a permanent state or condition of being free from sin. Is that bad? Is that bad? No, of course not. Not if that's the goal of my life. What am I trying to do through my whole Christian life? What am I trying to accomplish? What am I trying to eliminate from my life, my whole Christian life? Sin. I'm working hard to to eliminate. I'm working hard to get this stuff out of my life. I'm working hard to overcome it, to avoid it, aren't I? And then in one fell swoop, guess what? It's all gone. <laughs> in one fell swoop, it's all gone. So if I have that idea in my mind, kill me because I'm going to be where I want to get. Free from sin. Do you see how he's trying to encourage these Christians? In a he wants their lives to be victorious. He wants them to have the ability to triumph over their circumstances and sin. And so he's got to help them deal with this last great enemy, death, and have them see it not as an enemy, but rather as the doorway to what? Triumph. Are you following? This is so, so good. So important. You see, all fear is gone then. All fear of death is gone. All threatening is gone out of persecution. Kill me. I'm going to be where I'm trying to get, free from sin. Beloved, when a believer dies, he enters into a permanent condition, free from sin done with it. Christ, again, is the model of that. Christ was done with sin. That's what we're told. He was suffered, is done with sin. That was true of Christ. You say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He wasn't a sinner. That's right, he wasn't a sinner. He was without sin, true? But did sin still impact his life? Yes. Sure. He came into the world. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. He came into the world in the likeness of what? Sinful man to be a sin offering. He had to deal with sin. Sin still impacted his life. He subjected himself to evil men. He subjected himself to demonic forces to do wicked things to him. And in that doing so, he felt the brunt of sin on his life. And on the cross, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, on the cross we're told that he was made to be sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He bore our sin. He came in the likeness of sinful man. He came to receive the worst evil that sinful men could do to him. He went to the cross. He was made to be sin. He bore our sin at the cross. But when He died, He was what? Free from sin. He was free from sin. All of that which He suffered in His incarnation came to an end. He was no more in the likeness now of sinful man, but He was now what? Glorified. He will never again be subjected to the evil deeds of men or demons. He will never again bear sin because his death was once for all. And so Christ in his death is done with sin. He ceased from sin. He's free from sin. He triumphed. Beloved, he has nothing more to do with it and it has nothing more to do with him. Sin. Hallelujah. He has triumphed. He is free. He ceased from sin. So Peter says to us, arm yourselves with the same thought you, too, want to have this ultimate weapon in your own life. then understand that when you die, you are free from sin forever. Now only a fool, only a fool, would look at that and say, "No, I'd rather have what I've got." Think about that. Then are people who say, "No, no, I'd rather have what I've got." I can't imagine to remember that the end of sin is directly related to the death of your physical life. The end of sin is directly related to your physical life. And by the way, this is a great verse to give to those people who would teach perfectionism. We had a little spate of that in our church a few years ago. And uh, I shared this verse with the man who was leading that little group. And uh confounded him and they're no longer here. Um Peter says, You can't be perfect in this life. You can't be perfect in this life. We're still what? We have to contend with sin, don't we? But there are people who teach you you can be perfect in this life. Peter says, No, the only way you see some sin is when you're dead. There you go. The only sinless people are dead people. (laughs) Dead in the flesh. Dead to this world. Anyone alive in this world will have sin in their life. John tells us this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. This is incredible. He says, look, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We have sin in our life, if you're alive in this world. So Christ, by his death, was freed from the sinful powers under whose sway he voluntarily placed himself by identifying with us in his incarnation and by bearing our sin on that cross. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? i love to go back to this verse. Hebrews twelve, two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Joy. joy. What joy do you think he's talking about? The joy of being what? Free from sin. Done with sin. He pictured the cross. He saw the cross. He went to the cross, full knowing that in the cross there was what? Triumph over sin. For the joy set before Him, He saw through that very real present trial. And we also, beloved, can look forward to death. We can look forward to it because it frees us from sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 5 tells us as long as we're in the flesh, our sinful passions are going to be stirred up by the law. There's, a, there's an interesting concept. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul says in the midst of trying to do what's right, trying to do good. He says, I want to do what's right, I want to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. What do you think he wanted to do? Did he think he wanted to love God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength? Think he wanted to worship God unhindered? Is that what we want? What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you think that's what Paul wanted to do? Why couldn't he do it? Here's this, the Apostle Paul. Why couldn't he do it? He comes to this conclusion. He says, I know now why I can't do what I want to do. It is no longer I, but it is what? Sin living in me. There is no good thing living in my sinful nature. Those two words in the NIV, translated sinful nature, are the translation of the Greek word, sarkai, from the word sarkanos, the flesh. Nothing good living in this human nature. That's why it's going to fall off. That's why I can't, it won't go to heaven. so I need a new earth suit. Verse 23, that same passage, Romans chapter 7, speaks of the law of sin at work in the members of my body. Hey, beloved, as long as you're alive in this human body, you have a sin problem. There's no two ways about it. You have a sin problem. And the only relief you're going to get is when you what? When you leave the body. When your flesh dies. Death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is marvelous. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42. Paul writes about the, the, this great and glorious event called the resurrection. He says it's not until we die that we get a new body. Listen to this. It will be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it will be raised in power, it is sown in a natural body, it will be raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there will also be a what? Spiritual body. Beloved, it's not until we die that we get that imperishable, honorable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, heavenly body. Free from sin. And that's when, as Paul says later on in that chapter, when the sting of death is forever removed. What does he tell us is the sting of death? Sin. Sin is the sting of death, isn't it? Now, beloved, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're going to get there sooner or later, aren't you? You're going to get there sooner or later. Would sooner be too bad? Would sooner be too bad? Or would you rather wait until later and indulge yourself as long as possible in your sinful flesh? I mean, think about it. Do you understand why deeply thinking Christians do not fear death? Shallow Christians, shallow thinking Christians who are still too much occupied with the things here. That's why Paul says in Colossians, he says, set your mind and heart on things above, not on things below. Shallow thinking Christians have their perspective set here. Deeply thinking Christians have their hearts set there. That's why they don't fear death. That's why they long to be free from sin. That's why they are powerful in their testimony. Very, very important dynamic. We're all headed for that. We're all going to ultimately reach the blessing of sinlessness. And if you think about it, you ought to be saying the sooner the better. The sooner the better. Now, since that is our goal, to reach sinlessness, since that is our goal, and since that is our destiny, isn't it? Not only my goal, but it's my destiny. Then we don't fear suffering. Now, stay with me. Because the worst that suffering can do is kill us and give us the best. That is the goal of our life and our destiny and bring us into sinless perfection. Does that make sense to you? Let me say that again. Now, since the goal and destiny of our life is sinlessness, right? We don't fear suffering because the worst that suffering can do is kill us and bring us the best. That's the goal of our life. That's the destiny of our life to bring us into sinless perfection. Now, if you ever find yourself being burned at the stake, if you ever find yourself being crucified upside down, Nails driven into your ankles, into a wood post. If you ever find yourself threatened with death for the cause of Christ in any way, you can simply tell your persecutors that they are doing you an immense favor. For in the process of killing you, they are sending you into a sinless, perfect glory. Which is, for you, the goal of of your life, your destiny. That is the reason you were saved in the first place. And you can give them your deep appreciation for that generous gift that they are now bestowing upon you. Now, if all that sounds very strange to you, if all that sounds very strange to you, it shows you how confused our thinking is, right? It shows you where we may have missed some very, very important things. Now, the question is, why do I want to be armed with this idea? Why do I want to be so armed with this idea now, me? I'm not threatened with death. Why do I want to be armed with this idea? Verse 2. Look at verse 2. He tells us this. As a result, I'm armed with this idea that death frees me. I'm done with sin. It's triumph. Armed with that idea. I'm not afraid of dying. Okay, good, good. So far, so good. As a result, here's the effect now in our life. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life, the rest of his earthly life until he dies. He does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the what? I want to be armed with this idea so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh No longer for evil desires, but now rather for the will of God. You say, how does all that tie in? If the goal of my life is sinlessness in the end, then I've got to be on the way to that now, don't I? If that's my destiny, if that's my goal, shouldn't I be on the way to that now? Sinlessness now? I'm to live my life shunning sin, aren't I? I'm to live my, the rest of my time in the body, the rest of the time God gives me on earth. Until the day I cease from sin through death. No longer for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, someone would ask me this question, Well, why, why couldn't I just kill myself and be done with it now? Well, because you have no right. You do not belong to yourself. You've been purchased for a price. You belong to another. To him who what? was raised from the dead, Christ Jesus. Suicide is out of the question. You don't just kill yourself. Say, oh, well, Pastor Jackson, I should kill myself. And No, no, don't ever say that because that's not what I'm saying. Suicide is not the option. God has you here. God has you here until he determines it's time for you to go home. You no longer live your life for evil human desires. You live your life now for the will of God. But you only do that because you're what? You're first of all armed with the same attitude of Christ that even through death and suffering and death, there is what? Triumph. So death is no longer a threat. Suffering is no longer a threat. Am I making sense to you? So what do I live my rest of my life for? To avoid sin. So as to live on this earth, living out my human existence, as long as God still has me here, has work for me to do, the rest of the time God gives me life in this flesh, not for human desires, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So this is a very practical application, I believe, of what Peter has been teaching. He's taught us that Christ triumphed in death, didn't he? He taught us that Christ triumphed in his death, and we ought to have the same attitude that there's triumph in death. And that we're headed to a triumph over sin. We're headed in that direction. That's our destiny. That's our call. But it won't come to us until our death. And our death will be our greatest triumph. Since the goal of your life is the death that frees you from sin, then the present tense of your life, he says, should be the pursuit of the goal of your life. What's the goal of your life? To be free from what? the goal of your life is to be free from sin, then the present tense of your life should be the pursuit of the goal of your life, to be free from sin, which is in the here and now. So for the rest of the time in the flesh, beloved, we don't live for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. Thank you for constant encouragement. Thank you for the strength you give us. God, help us to be people who understand these things and take them to heart and embrace them in every way possible. We love you this morning. I want to just take a moment or two. I know we're running a little close on time, but this is such an important message. You turn the lights back on for a second, please. This is such an important message. I don't want to be misunderstood. And if anybody's confused about it or you have questions about it, let's take a couple of minutes and ask questions. Now, Dale? Um, I'm not afraid of suffering and dying. I'm at peace with that. I'm afraid of suffering and living. Suffering and living. That's the human part of us, isn't it? The human part of us. But you see, here's the thing. What What does he tell us? He says, look at Christ. Because in that suffering, there is triumph. You have to arm yourself with this. Because if you're not armed with this truth, this great reality, then you're going to be intimidated, you're going to be afraid, you're going to be afraid of suffering. That's just the reality. That's the human part. The human part dominates over the spiritual part. That's why it's so critical that we be armed with this attitude of Christ. And once you're there, there, then you say, you know what? Do what you're going to do to me. Do what you're going to do to me. You have to be armed with that first. I understand. i had moments. Yeah, we've all had moments. <laughs> well, see, here's the deal. That's why we're at this juncture in First Peter. Peter's now brought us to this place. He says, okay, this is where we are. Now, if you're going to understand the rest of First Peter, you've got to, to get over this hump. Okay, Lord, I'm willing. I'm ready. Michael? Right. Bible says remember Jesus Christ in his death. Penny? That I my was a so, Stand up real loud and sit, speak real loud so people he can hear you. Uh, My children without putting a fear in them, I think it's it sits I understood what would happen to her if she denied it. Right. That day. How do you teach your children now, young children? Yeah, without giving them a fear, like you told Michael, I don't know how long, how old he was when he had that dream. It was several years ago. He was he yeah. was kinda young. And just um uh, without you know, I wasn't fearful. I, I was just fearful of her denying Christ. Right. That telling m giving my children that security that I would deny I would never deny Christ but that we would be in heaven together. Right. Well, I think it's a function first of all. She saw, you hear her question, you hear her, her thing see It's, it's something that, that every Christian parent is going to have to address at some point or another. Uh, you know, what do you tell your kids if, in fact, you should suffer to the point of death for, for Christ's sake, for being a Christian? How are you going to deal with that? How do you prepare your kids for that? First of all, it has to happen in the context of a, of a, of a real Christian life. You can't just say, "Hey, uh, they're going to kill us." Oh. I mean, you've got to be nurturing them in the faith all along, and I know you are. You're nurturing confidence in the Lord all along, all along. And out of that context, God is going to give opportunities, He's going to give those points of instruction where you're going to be sharing. And it's so important for parents to be reading the Bible with their kids. Because as you read the Bible with your kids, you're teaching them, teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. And as you teach them, you come to these passages, and, they, and you say, this is what this means. And you take them back again to the cross. You take them back to Jesus. And they're already, because you've been reading with them in the Gospels, they're already horrified by what Jesus had to go through. And you say, that's for us. And boy, that just breaks your heart if you're a child. And so you have to do this in the context of Christian teaching and, uh, and uh, uh, lifestyle, family style. Um, Godwin, you had your hand up. What is what now? The worst The worst sin? All sin is worst. Even the bittiest sin is worst. You go to hell for the bittiest sin. (laughs) Right? Uh, If you've you've sinned once, if you've broken the law at one point, you've broken the whole law. That's what he tells us. Well, if sin is greater than the devil, what is sin? What What is sin? It's It's this vile contamination that condemns us to hell that subjects us to the to the demonic realm it is worse than all of that because it is the cause of our being lost and that's what we must be delivered from and in being delivered from sin we're delivered from the domain of darkness in being delivered from sin we're delivered from hell so we have great great victory in being delivered from sin as christians you have to understand sin is the worst evil You do not want to coexist with it. You want to battle it. You want to battle it. You want to battle it because that is one the goal of your life to be free from it. Do you understand that? That's our destiny. And unless you have this attitude in Christ that it is the worst thing and you want to be delivered from it, then you won't battle it like you should because it will take more and more territory. You'll compromise more and more. And should a day come when we are forced to deal with these issues on a physical basis, uh, in terms of persecution and death, chances are we'll back away. I know you have other questions. We run out of time. Let's stand. Let's praise God. If you have more questions, come after the next service. <laughs> this world is not I'm just a through. My treasures are laid up.